At this time, I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. No matter what job you have, people tend to have a kind of limited or simplistic understanding of what you actually do. Am I right about that? Whether you're a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or an accountant or a school teacher, there are aspects of your job that nobody gets because they don't do them. Nobody thinks about them, nobody grasps them, nobody experiences them, but those who actually do them. And this is true basically for all jobs. But here's the question that we need to consider today. What does a pastor do? Here are some real conversations that I've had in the past year. Uh, When I was picking out carpet for getting in Ariel's apartment over there, um, I was at the carpet store and I was walking around with a couple of guys back in the warehouse area. They were pointing out what was available and one of the guys said, so you're a pastor, huh? That's a pretty cushy job. You work one day a week and then you live in a place for free. That's awesome. No clue what a pastor does. Also, within the last year, I received a text message from somebody who visited our church. Uh, This person is from another religious background, and uh, this person told me, your job as a pastor is not to tell people what to do or what to think. Your job is to help people make friends and community. And this comes from my son Athanasius, my own blood. Dad, when you go to work, what do you actually do? I'm thankful he asked, actually. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be zooming in on the biblical office of elder, or as we see it written here, the office of overseer. Today we're going to simply focus in on one verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This week our goal is to answer the simple question from this text, what is that? What is an overseer? Let's ask the Lord for his blessing on his word. Father God, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you, Lord, that when we were born, we knew nothing. We knew nothing about how life worked. And especially, Lord, we had no comprehension of you or your word or your ways. Yet, God, by your grace, you have allowed us to come to an understanding of your word. For those in this room who have been saved, you have opened our eyes to trust in Christ. You have sought us and bought us with his redeeming love. And God, I thank you that there are many in this room who have a strong comprehension of these things that I will say already. For them, God, I pray this would be an encouraging reminder. And Lord, I ask for anyone who is growing in this knowledge, who has come to this question and not been able to answer it. God, I pray that your word would help us today to come to a clear understanding of what it means that the church should be led by their pastors. God, help us to define it, describe it in such a way that would please you, that would be accurate and truthful. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in us today to make this much more than an informational moment, but that this time as we gather today would encourage our souls and convict us of sin and cause us to trust you and live for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I preach a sermon, the goal of preaching is that I would read the Bible, and then that I would explain the Bible, and then I would apply the Bible. And generally, it kind of follows that order. Generally, the application comes at the very end as we basically answer the question, so what? 
as we've learned what the Bible says and now what it means, what does it mean for me? How do I live this out? How do I put this into practice? How do I put feet to these words of truth? However, today what we're going to do is something a little different. Today I want you to know right up front a couple of the ways that this applies to you. And I want to do this because there might be a temptation on your part to say, Well, this is a passage about pastors, therefore the person standing up on the stage is really just preaching to himself because he is the only one in the room right now that this applies to. Well, that would be an inaccurate response. You might think that you're not an elder and you're not interested in being an elder and you will never be an elder, therefore you take this morning as an extended opportunity to just think about lunch. Well, that's a bad approach. Don't let your mind wander. These words are designed to safeguard our local body. This passage, this scripture, was not just written to an individual. He addresses in it the entire church. And as you will see, every member of the church should know what God has to say about biblical church leadership. When churches do not know these things, they get into lots of trouble because they put people in leadership that should not be there. So here are Three application points that I'm going to repeat at the end, and I will expand on them at the end of this sermon. But for now, going in, I want you to know right up front, these are three reasons why you should listen carefully. One, because your job as members of the church, in part, is to elect overseers. Secondly, your job is to follow your overseers. And thirdly, your job is to be led by the overseer, Jesus Christ. Now, with all that in mind, let's answer today this very simple, single question from the text. What are overseers? There are many accurate ways to answer this question, and there's a lot that we could cover that I'm not going to focus on today, but I will simply zoom in today on nine truths about what the Bible says regarding the nature of an overseer or pastors. The first one is this. Pastors are elders and overseers and shepherds. You may have already noticed in this sermon that, if you're listening carefully, I have used the terms elder, overseer, and pastor interchangeably. And there's a very good reason for that. I speak that way because the Bible speaks that way. Think of it this way. The president of our country has various titles. He is the commander-in-chief. He is the chief executive. He is the POTUS. And due to the influence of good old George Washington, he is Mr. President. Now, actually, our country has very few titles for our main leader, but the British love their titles, and the Queen of England actually has more than 25 official titles, and she actually has 16 retired titles, titles that they got tired of repeating every time they got together, and so they just stopped using them. To put it another way, it would be accurate to refer to Ashley as my wife, Also, it would be accurate to refer to her as the mother of my children, and it would also be accurate to refer to her as my best friend. All of those things are true, but they all speak to different aspects of my relationship to her. In a very similar way, the Bible uses three separate Greek words to describe the very same office. The first term is presbyteros. That's where we get the word presbytery. That's where Presbyterians get their title. This is the word that is translated into English as elder, but it is important to understand why it is translated as elder, why we have that term, why that is connection. In our world today, youth is honored where age is scorned. Historically, that is quite the opposite. 
Historically, it was those who were aged who were treated with honor, and the young were considered less and less wise and less influential. So culturally, this word means more than just age. It takes on the connotation of wisdom and the connotation of understanding. It speaks to one's ability to guide and to counsel and to lead accurately. And we know with certainty that this role was not chosen based on age. In other words, the people were not looking around the congregation and saying, all right, who's over 65? You can be an elder, and you can be an elder, and you can be an elder. How do we know that's true? Well, one of the ways we know that's true is because of this very letter that we're reading today. First Timothy was written to a young man, Timothy, who was an elder. You can hear Paul specifically specifically call out his young age in chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, let no one despise, meaning let no one look down on you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in purity. So elder is a term that is used to speak to those who lead with wisdom. The second word that is used to refer to pastors is the Greek word episkopos. That's where we get the word episcopal or episcopalian. It's usually translated into English as bishop, but here, if you're following along in the English Standard Version, it translates into the word overseer. This word literally means the one who rules over. Therefore, this title speaks to the authority pastors have over the congregation. It is their responsibility to rule over that family of Christ faithfully. They are to hold the line of truth, and they are to do so not only with the scripture that is taught, but also the actions that are carried out within the body of Christ. And the third Greek word that is used to describe pastors is the word poimen. This simply means shepherd. Uh, Jonathan, where are you? Where'd you go? There he is. Uh, Jonathan, can you stand for a moment? Jonathan is uh, one of uh, the best Spanish speakers in our church, and I want to ask you the question, uh, what is the word shepherd in Spanish? What, what is the word that is used, uh, what's another word that's used for it? I didn't realize there was two. The one I was looking for was the one I found on Google Translate, which is pastor. Pastor, is that, is that also accurate? Google Translate for the win. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. This is why you should never do things live. Um, however, the, the reason we have the word pastor in English is because pastor comes from Latin. Pastor is the word that was originally for shepherd, which is why in the Latin languages, pastor is still often the word that is used for those who actually watch sheep. Pastor is what we often call those who are leading congregations today, but it's just one of those three words that's used in the Bible. Whenever you refer to me or any other pastor as pastor, you are doing so because the Bible refers to these leaders using this specific aspect of the character and role of those who lead the church. Likely, this word has been chosen as the primary title for pastors for centuries because of the way it combines the previous two words together, and it takes aspects of both of them and brings them together in this way. A shepherd wisely and gently and carefully leads the sheep. He is to be a protector. He is to be a guide. He is to promote the well-being. How so? By feeding the flock. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? to teach the word, feed the flock. He does so to nourish them 
and nourish their souls with the Word of God. That is the calling of the pastor. In order to show you one example of how these three words are used interchangeably in the Bible, let me show you 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, there are other places we could go. This is just one where you can kind of see them all mashed together in a similar way. He writes, So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder, presbyteros, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, which is the verb form of pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Here we see these three words, episkopos and presbyteros and poimain, all used in the same few sentences in order to describe the same exact office. Now, you may remember at my installation service a few months ago, Miss Joan Hickman read those exact words, and she did so as a reminder to me that I am called here to be a wise leader, to guard and rule, and to shepherd the flock wisely. Why? Because a pastor is an elder, is a bishop. The second thing we want to consider about pastors today is that there should be a plurality of pastors within the church. Many of you have come from churches with unhealthy understandings of church leadership. Their ecclesiology is all scrambled. In most churches in our nation, the pastor is basically viewed as the king of the church. And if he has any checks and balances, they come from the form of a contentious deacon board or maybe a trustee board. But whatever he says generally goes. He is the arbiter in all disputes, and he answers to no one. I can't think of anything that's more unhealthy for a pastor, much less a church, than that. That is why you never see, ever, in the Scripture, a lone elder. Let me briefly show you the model for church planting that the apostles carried out. First, they were sent out to go uh, plant a church by carrying the gospel to a place that needed it. We see this happen for the first time, Acts chapter 13, when the church prayed and they send out Paul and Barnabas. And then they would go preach the gospel, and if people came to Christ in that town, they would stay there for a while to help the church develop and grow. But when they did leave and go on to the next town, there was a reason they felt comfortable doing so. What was the deciding factor that would cause them to pack up and to move on? The answer to that question is found in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, which says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the very last verse about Paul's first missionary journey. It is a summary of all that Paul and Barnabas had done while they were traveling throughout Asia Minor. And the clear standard for establishing a new church was that there would be a plurality of elders, and then they would commit them to the Lord and go. And it states that every one of these churches had these plurality of elders. And once they had them, Paul and Barnabas felt comfortable that they could go on to the next place and plant another church. From that point forward, you never again see a single occasion where any church has just one elder. The only possible allusion to this is found in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 5. This is when Paul is telling Titus and reminding him, This is why I sent you. This is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order. Well, what was left to do, Paul? And appoint elders in every town as I had directed you. In other words, Titus's main mission was not evangelism. His main purpose was not to plant more churches. In fact, as far as we know, Titus never spoke to any unbelievers in Crete. He was sent there. He was left in Crete after Paul left him there for the purpose of making sure that every single church had elders and that he was able to appoint them appropriately. And that's what the rest of the book of Titus is all about, is what qualifies somebody to be one of those men who's going to serve there in those churches. Now, at this time, you will note that Gateway does not have a plurality of elders. This is not a good thing, and it is a temporary thing. It is not my intention or my desire to remain as the sole elder of this church. We are in this position that we are in currently due to the sudden transition that took place in the middle of last year. We had two elders move away to different states on the same day. Now we have those who are qualified but have not yet been voted in as active elders of the church. On the first Sunday in April, we are going to gather together after this church service ends with those who are members of the congregation, and we are going to vote on others who will be nominated to serve as elders in this body. We desire to have a plurality of elders. And in doing so, it is my earnest desire to share this authority that the Lord has given to me with those who will serve faithfully in this body. The third thing that we need to consider today about pastors is that pastors are to rule over a local flock. In biblical Christianity, there is no such thing as a pope or a bishop who rules over some kind of a wide swath of churches. Uh, The only people within the church who ever held that authority were the apostles. And there are no apostles today. If anyone introduces himself to you as an apostle, run. Do not listen to them. There are no apostles today. And if you want a biblical explanation of why not, I can show that to you at a further time. Earlier, I read from the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And get familiar with those verses. You're going to hear them quite a bit, not only today, but also next Sunday. But let's look a little bit closer at verse 2. It says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Don't overlook those two little words, among you. The oversight that I am to exercise is limited to the flock of God that he has placed here at Gateway. So I'm not going to walk into some neighboring church and begin to act with authority over the people of that congregation. I have no authority there. Let me explain one of the main reasons why it's really important that I highlight this. A large percentage of people who are in this building were saved out of the false religion of Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, people, sinful men, become priests. And when somebody becomes a priest, according to Roman Catholic dogma, they can never unbecome a priest. So no matter what crimes they commit, no matter how much they deny verbally the faith, whatever they do, they cannot lose the title of being a priest. They are always, in all places, considered a priest of God Most High, over all of the people of earth. They are set to a different standard and put on a pedestal above all other people. They call it the indelible mark on the soul. 
That does not exist in the Bible, and it is not true in any way, shape, or form, and it will not be something enacted in this church. So if I was to, for some reason, resign from this church and go to another church, I am not just a pastor in that congregation because I walked through the doors. Being a pastor who was elected here does not make me a pastor anywhere except here. We are a pastor of local churches. A pastor is called to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. The fourth thing that I want to show you about pastors from the Word of God is that all pastors share equal authority within the same local church. There is not even a hint of hierarchy amongst elders expressed in the New Testament. So much so that when Peter addresses the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he does not even claim his own apostolic authority. Instead, he simply says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. If there was ever a time in the Bible for Peter to say to the church, uh, I'm the first pope, I rule over all of you as the vicar of Christ, so hear what I have to say, this is the place to say it. But he doesn't. Instead, Peter simply acknowledges that elders share equal authority within the local body. So what does that look like here at Gateway? Well, right now I'm the only elder, so I share authority with myself in that sense. It's a moot point. However, in the future, when we do elect other elders, and there is a plurality of pastors within this church, at that point, I will have no special authority over those men. We will be equal leaders of the congregation. So practically speaking, God uses men of various temperaments and of various backgrounds to strengthen each other and to use each other's weaknesses in order to carry out his purposes in the local church. I cannot tell you how many times I have been in a meeting and I have been thankful for the incredible wisdom of Mike Neglia as we have been walking through a difficult counseling situation with people. I can't express how much I have learned from listening to the probing questions of Steve Schultz as he will ask them to people who are in a sharp disagreement. It is very helpful to have a plurality of elders who can share with one another in their strengths and in their weaknesses. And I have had the blessing to share an elders meeting with many faithful shepherds over the past 15 or so years that I have served the Lord in this capacity. And I have watched God work through so many different men And even when I disagree with them, I can see how God is using the disagreement to bring about his will. Let me explain. When two elders do not agree on what should be done in a particular situation, do you know what that causes them to do? That causes them to study and to dig into the word and not go by impulse, but to really stand on what the scripture says. Why do you think we should do this? I think we should do this because... And then we go to the Bible and find exactly what Christ teaches. If there is ever a disagreement, it is disagreed upon respectfully and graciously, but with conviction. And every single time, without fail, I have seen these disagreements result in God revealing the right path that eventually the elders agree upon for the church to take. Just as a side note, not in my notes, another important element of this that is so vital and good for you as a congregation is this. Jesus did not have 100,000 people that he shepherded through this when he was in his, uh, his earthly ministry. He had 12 that he focused upon. There is nobody that could lead a megachurch. I could not do it. There is no one that could shepherd that many people. 
And this church is already large enough that I cannot faithfully shepherd all of the people and keep in contact with all of the members and follow up on all of the prayer needs and counsel all of the discouragements. There is no possible way that I could faithfully do that. And it is good to have a plurality of shepherds who are carefully and methodically thinking through how to wisely guide and care for the needs of the flock. It is good to have a plurality of elders. God knew what he was doing. So when our elders are installed, you need to know that they are coming alongside of me as equal partners in authority and in leadership. However, number five, not all pastors have the same role. Although all elders do share equal authority, that does not mean that we all share the same responsibility. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice that every single elder is worthy of double honor. However, Paul highlights the fact that some elders labor in teaching and preaching, which indicates that others do not. However, As we'll see next week, one of the qualifications for elders is that they must be able to teach. In other words, every elder should have the capability, and if called upon, every one of them should uh, have the uh, strength to stand and to explain the Word of God faithfully. It must be a gift that God has given to them. However, it does not mean that they are required to be in constant use of that gift within the body. And the very next verse that is mentioned in 1 Timothy says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, what is Paul's point? His point is that you should pay your pastor, but in particular, the focus is on the pastor that will be responsible for teaching and preaching the word of God on a regular basis. And the reason for this is obvious and clear. Because the one who is teaching and preaching should be the one who is studying, studying, studying. The one who is reading, reading, reading. The one who is working throughout the week to make sure that when they stand up, they are not mumbling and bumbling and fumbling through the text so that they can explain to you faithfully and rightly what the Word of God says with having enough time to be able to do it. That is why the church supports uh, the lead uh, teaching pastor in order to make sure that there is enough time provided to prepare. So that as they trample out the grain, you help care for them. That is why I am so grateful you have provided me this opportunity to work for you. So that I can set my time and attention on God's word. Rather than, let's face it, I don't have a lot of other skills. I would be out there cleaning toilets all week. And then getting home late at night and studying the word of God only in the wee hours of the morning. And not having much to prepare and to give. So I thank you abundantly for your kindness It is the joy of my life to be able to read and study the Bible in order to walk through the Word together with you. The sixth thing I want to show you about pastors is that pastors must be men. Now, I'm not going to slam this too hard because last week we covered it quite thoroughly. So if you missed that, I encourage you, the website has it available for you. Go back and listen to it. I'm not going to reiterate all the arguments. I will simply say, now that we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, consider the fact that verse 1 uses the phrase that if anyone desires to be an an overseer, he desires a noble task. He, it is masculine. And that same masculine pronoun is repeated six more times. Seven times in seven verses, an elder is referred to using he. Now, it's important to understand that 
it's not just that we have he or she. Like in English, we say he or she. In Greek, there is the neuter. In other words, if he wanted to say he or she must, they would have used the neuter pronoun. But that does not get use anywhere in this text. Therefore, it is clear, just as another argument to add to the pile last week, he is certainly saying that all those who serve as an elder, as a bishop, as an overseer, as a pastor, must be men. God has called men and only men to the role of elder. I'm sure you've heard many of these arguments. You're ready for me to move to seven. Pastors will give an account for how they lead. What motivates you to do your job well? Well, probably in part, honestly, it's the fact that you want to continue to receive a paycheck. And that's not a bad thing, but there is an underlying motivation that all Christians should have when they are working. Paul teaches us in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, and in this instance, he's actually talking primarily to those who are servants. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your motivation to work should not mainly be your paycheck or your reputation or the favor you receive from men or the legacy that you leave behind or anything else. Rather, we work hard knowing that we are serving the Lord Christ. And we also know, according to this text, that it is he who rewards us. There's something much greater than your bank account that's going to be affected by serving the Lord at your job. But as a pastor, I also want you to know that I will not only be responsible for doing this with joy as unto the Lord, but I will also give an account for how I shepherd your souls. Hebrews chapter 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is the elders' responsibility to care for the souls of the people in the church. This means ensuring that you are walking with Christ, walking with you through trials, walking through temptation, helping you when you are weak in the faith, helping you when your circumstances are difficult, instructing the mind and the heart to follow Christ. And as a side note, this is one of the reasons why I am so very serious about the need for saints to actually attend and gather at the church. Members who do not faithfully attend make it incredibly difficult to faithfully shepherd. And please know, I will give an account for those who are members of this body. This is one of the reasons why our church bylaws state that those who do not faithfully attend will be removed from membership. And I'm aware that there may be extenuating circumstances in some rare and unique cases, but generally speaking, the scripture is very clear that we are not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. It is for the sake of oversight of your souls. The eighth thing that I want you to see here about pastors is that they are to lead gently. When speaking of pastors, going back to 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 3 again. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Have you ever had a really bad boss who maybe yelled at you all the time or pushed you around, figuratively speaking? Uh, maybe he would intentionally put you in difficult situations, or maybe she would assign you extra work. I remember once when I was working for a horrible boss at a restaurant in Chanute, Kansas. My boss was angry with me for pointing out that some of his practices were actually illegal, and uh, that 
he had to change them, but he was frustrated with me for pointing them out, so he decided that he would schedule me for every close and then every opening for 10 straight days, which meant that I was working 8 o'clock, I'm sorry, I would be working from 5 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock, and then I would go back to work at 9 o'clock p.m. and get off at 1 o'clock. If you're doing the math, that means that I had a four-hour window in which to go home, sleep, get cleaned up and ready, and come back and be at work to clock in at 5 o'clock in the morning. It was grueling. And why would he do that? Because he was a jerk. Yes, that's true. (laughs) He was a terrible boss. Maybe you've had a boss like that. Maybe you've had somebody who has the authority to do something, and they take the advantage of their authority. Now, what he was doing previously, I could point out and say that was illegal. But what he was doing in my scheduling, he had every right to do so. And I had every right to say I was uncomfortable, but I couldn't change it. There's nothing I could do to actually uh, alter the situation that I, was within, that I was in because he was in his rights to lead in that way. But it doesn't make him a good leader. Peter tells pastors not to lead that way. Even when you have the right to simply demand, he says, lead by example. Similarly, Paul tells Timothy to be an example in his conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Pastors do have to draw lines in the sand. Pastors do have to enact church discipline. Pastors even occasionally have to bring people forward to be disciplined out of the church. However, none of these things should ever be done in a domineering manner or out of spite. We are to gently and humbly and graciously lead and shepherd the flock of God. Ninth, Pastors can serve joyfully, or they can serve with groaning. It's not my intention to be patronizing with this illustration, so please don't hear it that way, but bear with me. Anyone who is a parent knows that children are one of the greatest joys in your life. Right, Ace? Children are one of the greatest joys. They truly are. And there are times when they will also just make your life incredibly difficult. There are times when it is challenging. There are moments in my parenting where I am so delighted with one of my kids, I can't help but smile and laugh at them because of how cute they are, or how funny they are, or how clever they are, or how much they've grown, and how much they just make me proud to be their dad. And there are other times when I go into a room and I say, God, I just don't know what to do. What do I do? This is difficult. I am in a challenging situation with a child. I don't know how to get him or her to hear me. There are times... When, if you're a parent, you have felt this. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are some people within the church who simply make the pastor's life difficult. Some t- people do this intentionally. Um, just as a side note, as an example, when I was a youth minister in Indiana at one point, I was serving, and I, I was, it was one of the first times I was actually hearing the pastor preach, and I walked out of the service, and the person in the church who was kind of like the elderly saint, this lady who was kind of one of the main leaders of the church, walked out and put her finger right in the pastor's face and said, you're meddling, pastor, based on his sermon, in front of everybody. That is a terrible, terrible thing to do. If you have a disagreement with my sermon, please talk to me about it. But don't do that publicly. It is an undermining of his authority. And it is very important for you to know there are some times when sin 
creeps into the camp, and it makes it so challenging. And there are times when pastors give instruction. To be honest, one of the most discouraging things to a pastor that I've seen in my own life is when you preach a sermon and you know that somebody in that room is in absolute violation of that sermon, of what God has said in his word, and they walk out of the room, they shake your hand and they say, great sermon, pastor, and their lives do not change one bit. They continue on in their sin and in their absolute rejection of what God teaches. That is discouraging. And he says, let your pastors serve with joy. Why? He says, because it's bad for you when you don't. It's actually bad for not only the elders, but for the congregation when you do not submit to them. This does not mean that you have to follow leaders who are sinning or leading you into sin. It means that when your pastors are seeking to care for your soul, and when they tell you what the Bible teaches about your life, listen to them and respond to them with obedience. And lastly, pastors are under-shepherds. My favorite verse in 1 Peter is actually found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, which says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That is the gospel. That's what you must believe in order to be saved. That Jesus Christ died taking our sins upon himself so that he might give us his righteousness. But right after this, Peter, the same guy who speaks in chapter 5, using the three Greek words for pastor, he says the same thing about Jesus. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, poimen, and overseer, episkopos, of your souls. Notice that he refers to them using both of these two Greek words, not all three in this instance, but Jesus is the pastor of the church. Peter hammers this home in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and he says, When the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right after Peter calls on elders and he says that they are shepherds and reminds them to serve the church faithfully, right after that, he says there is only one chief shepherd. Jesus alone rules as the head of the church. And any pastor who is placed in leadership must align himself with Christ. We recently voted in our new bylaws and constitution, and I hope that when we were going through that process, that you as a member of the church read it and thought through it and prayed over it. And I hope that as you were going through it, you noticed under, under Article 7, local church leadership, this is the very first section. This is what it says about our leadership. Primary point, point number one, Jesus is the senior pastor or the chief shepherd of Gateway Church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So what does that mean for you? Let's land this plane now with three simple applications that we heard at the outset. We'll flesh them out a little bit. First, your role is to elect overseers. When we get to the book of Galatians, as we're reading through the New Testament together this year, you will see that Paul harshly condemned the church in Galatia for following false teachers to serve as elders. He actually tells the congregation, you are at fault for following those elders. This indicates that the local church is responsible for determining their leaders. In this church, that looks like voting on elders that are nominated, nominated at these business meetings. And when those votes arrive, don't simply say yes for the sake of saying yes. Consider the lives of these men. Consider if they are able to carry out the calling that we heard about today. And next week, we are going to see all of the criteria that you were supposed to examine about their character and their gifting to see if they are qualified as pastors. Examine them to see if they exhibit these things. 
We have immense power as members of the church to either strengthen or damage the local body based on who we determine to lead. Secondly, your role is to follow overseers. The Bible calls all Christians to submit to Scripture. Amen. And in this local body, God has also called you to submit to the authority of the elders who are to lead you. And when done rightly, this produces a church that is healthy and unified and strong, as the elders say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And thirdly, your role is to be led by Jesus Christ. This is important to understand because you need to remember that all pastors are sinners. I am a sinner. And that means that every pastor will let you down. And that means I will let you down. However, there are things that pastors can do that would automatically disqualify them from ministry. And if that were to happen, your responsibility is not to be loyal to the local pastor. You should be loving toward the local pastor, but your responsibility is to Jesus Christ himself. If a pastor falls or fails, your faith can still stand. Your local pastors do not save you. Jesus saves you. If your pastor sins, your salvation is not in danger. As Paul said in Galatians 1.8, even if we, Paul says, look, even if I show up again, or even an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I seek to watch over your souls, I call on you to also watch mine. Make sure that as I am teaching, as I am preaching, as I am living before you, that I do not turn into one of these people. Paul says, if I come and preach a false gospel, may I be cursed. I echo that. If I come and I preach to you a false gospel, let me be accursed. But I come before you today and I call on you to watch your pastor, currently singular, future plural, and always, always, always know that Jesus' words trumps that of the under-shepherds. He is the true shepherd. He is the pastor of the church. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is clear in terms of what a pastor is in a local body. I also thank you, God, that you are clear about what a pastor is not, that no pastor can save, that no pastor can do anything to change the outcome of a person's soul. But God, you, through Jesus Christ, have sought us and bought us with redeeming love. God, I pray that right now that if there is anyone in the room who is not currently following Christ, if they have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, if they have not acknowledged him as Lord, if they have not been saved, God, I pray that you would use even this lesson on elders to convict them and to reveal to them the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. And Lord, I also pray for those of us in this room who know you, that we would be absolutely amazed that you, the God of the universe, would care to shepherd and guard and wisely lead and humbly protect your flock. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.